Welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. and welcome to Turn the Page. I'm your host today, Jen, and I'm so excited to bring you the author of an absolutely fantastic book that just consumed my weekend. And oh gosh, I can't wait to talk about it. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and your book, please? Uh, Yeah, Uh, my name is Alicia Elliott. I'm a writer who's currently living in Brantford, Ontario, Um, uh, but my family is from Six Nations of the Grand River, which is where um, the reserve where a lot of the, the book is kind of like set in the prequel part anyways. Um, uh, my book is called And Then She Fell. Um, and it's kind of like a a weird, I guess, cross genre sort of book about a woman named Alice who um, lived her whole life on the Six Nations Reserve and kind of fell into this whirlwind romance with this uh, white man who is studying um Haudenosaunee planting practices and things like that and um got married moved to Toronto um is pregnant um and while she's living in Toronto with her baby her mother has died and um from there she kind of um things kind of start to get very strange and she starts to um hear things and see things that kind of um beckon back to her past and uh it kind of um compels her to try to work on this creation story, writing this creation story that she uh, she feels like she has to write um, as kind of like homage to her father. And things get kind of wild from there, I guess, if that's like the, the hopefully legible kind of uh, um, pitch for it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah, it is such a pleasure to read it's it's really uh scary and also really beautiful and <laughs> and really uh like tense and it just there's so many interesting things going on and you do play with a lot of really cool genres um before we get into it too much I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey to the book um how you got into writing and perhaps maybe how um you know how your writing sort of progressed from your memoir to this because there are some similar issues at play, but you're doing really different things with them. Uh, Yeah, for sure. So um, I guess when I was young, like I think a lot of people, I, I thought that the only kind of books or, or genre that really mattered was uh, was fiction. Um, and so I had always like as a kid and everything really loved books and, uh, you know, kind of aspired to write a novel one day. And uh as I kind of grew up, life kind of, as life does, shifted around me. And uh, I ended up having um, my own son when I was, or getting pregnant with my son when I was 17. And so that kind of threw a wrench into all of these plans that I had. Um, and so, you know, um, I, I went through university for creative writing in English. And then uh, after that, I was just like, okay, I need to figure out stuff like with my son he needs to have like a stable home life and everything and so I kind of like um after applying uh, to all of these MFA programs in Canada and not getting into any I was like okay I'm just gonna need to like set up everything 
go back, move back to Brantford from, I was living in Toronto at the time and just like make things stable for my son so that he's like good in school and everything. And I'll figure out this writing stuff later. And, uh, I, I kind of had to, I like, I was working at Starbucks at the time and, uh, I, I kind of had to work around that. Um, and I eventually started writing pieces that got accepted different places. A lot of them were, um, creative nonfiction pieces and um and editorials and things like that and so I kind of went that route um and uh that was what my first book was um it, it was kind of like a non-traditional publishing route because I didn't have any MFA background or anything like that I kind of had to like um I guess hustle with social media and and different things like that to try and uh build my career outside of those I guess more traditional means and um, that kind of culminated with um, my first book which was um, uh, a mind spread out on the ground which is um, uh, I call it an essay collection um, I guess some of them are kind of memoirish, um, but I don't think of it as a traditional memoir um, just because I don't um, I don't like traditional memoirs <laughs> <laughs> so, just in general I'm not like saying anything as the genre just you know, um, it, it's more interesting to me to kind of um, use kind of the essay form to kind of stretch and pull and be able to do whatever the content requires and kind of um, play and experiment with it. And so I found that very fun. But, um, you know, this was so different, obviously, from the the fiction and novel that I novels that I originally aspired to write as um, as a kid. Uh, and this this book kind of um, started actually as um, uh, as a novella and a short story. And so um, the novella just um, was kind of about this woman who was a new mother and it was kind of pulling from um, some of my own experiences. And um, but it just kept getting longer and longer. <laughs> and I was like, OK, this is going to be a novella. And then I was like, OK, no, this is going to be a novel. It like kept getting too big. Um, and then. Uh, as I, I wasn't sure how to necessarily shape it at first, but um, it occurred to me kind of uh, that, you know, my, my, one of my original loves was, um, the, was Anne Rice and kind of like her vampire chronicles and, and that kind of like horror-esque kind of like, uh, but also not horror at the same time, kind of uh, in between genre. And when I started thinking about like, man, I should be writing something that like, that my young self would like love to read. And that kind of like opened up things for me as I started to try and like be like, okay, I can see how I can move this this way. And then the prologue was originally a different short story. I kind of added that in and kind of moved things around and everything started to kind of make sense. Um, and I was kind of pulling from also my own experiences um, because I had experienced psychosis and mania. And so, um, you know, I originally had conceived of um, Alice as having um, postpartum psychosis and, and mania and stuff like that um, prior to my own experience of it. So it was kind of this weird thing that it then happened to me. And then I was able to kind of be like, okay, that experience was totally different than what I, I had thought it was going to be um, because I had I had observed my own mother having um, psychosis and mania and the way it looked from the outside is definitely not how it is on the inside and and I thought that that was something that was very important for me to kind of try to portray 
um, in an empathetic and authentic way, I suppose. Mm. That is so, so interesting. And there's so much there I want to respond to. The first point, I really actually liked your point about memoir, um, because I do think that sometimes like memoirs do kind of impose a narrative on a life that might not necessarily exist yet, or that like we are certainly not privy to, you know, in our lifetimes. (laughs) And it's like a little bit more exploratory and a little bit, you know, like a little bit more organic in a way. And I, that's a really interesting idea to me. Um, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about maybe the way that the novel does speak to, um, you know, how culture shapes um, not only the experience of like mental health, but also how it is perceived from the outside by other people, because it's really about Alice's experience of it, but also how other people around her sort of um, interpret it themselves and respond to it. Uh, is that something that uh, you thought about like while you were writing? Uh, yeah, for sure. I um, I had a lot of conversations um, with my sister about it. And um, my sister is um, a Mohawk language uh, learner. She's, she's had to go through um, a number of years of schooling and, and Mohawk is um, uh, going from English to Mohawk is incredibly difficult. They say that it's like um, uh, that going from Mohawk to Chinese is like super, super difficult in terms of w- the way that it like requires you to think differently in, in regards to everything. And, and Mohawk is even more difficult. And so um, so she kind of t- did all of that and and having that knowledge of how it it shapes the way that you think through things and everything. Um, uh, it was really interesting for me to kind of talk through these sorts of things with her as well, because um, there is, you know, um, so much that has been lost um, and, and the things that we still have in some ways um, for our people, we're actually kind of lucky because uh, the anthropologists um, were really, really super enamored with uh, with Mohawk people and Haudenosaunee people. And so they would spend a whole bunch of time in our communities and they would write all about it. And so there's all of these like primary um, documentation, which is great. But of course, that means that we only have the things that they thought was important through their perspective. And so there are certain things that, you know, even reading back on those primary documents, it you have to kind of know the mindset and what and everything to almost kind of like retranslate some of it back into what it perhaps would have been um, when our own people were doing that. And, you know, because of so much language loss and because of the way that colonialism really forced our people to change everything about um, the way that we operated, um, it, it kind of made it so that uh, a lot of our spiritual practices and, and, and ways of looking at things and, and everything, um, we're lucky to still have them in some ways because, uh, um, Moha- the Mohawk community in, in, on Six Nations, a lot of them were very Christian. And, um, the o- only reason we have certain ceremonies and things like that today is because, um, the Cayuga people who are, who are another one of the Six Nations, um, and were very decidedly against Christianity, were very protectionist and and kept all of these things to themselves, but there's still things that we have lost. And so um, in terms of that, it's um, when I was talking to my sister kind of about 
the ways that we would have interpreted, um, you know, what, what we call mental illness, things like that. Um, it was interesting because we kind of talked about how, um, other cultures and communities kind of talk about it because we don't necessarily have the same language in a lot of ways. And so, um, those things that were lost and, and stuff like that, we have, we, we kind of just have to make guesses at. And so it was kind of, um, I guess, um, part of it was kind of me thinking through some of this stuff and also thinking through like, you know, um, for example, the ways that, uh, you know, indigenous people, a lot of indigenous people feel very, very scared in some ways of, um, of doctors, of, of, uh, hospitals and things like that, because, um, to this day, <laughs> there's still, uh, you know, um, forced sterilizations that are happening on indigenous women without their consent, um, in hospitals, uh, but also in prisons and things like that. And so, you know, we have this history of, um, of really difficult, um, interactions with the medical community. I mean, in Canada, here in Canada, um, in residential schools, they did experiment nutrition experiments on starving indigenous kids. And as the, they, because they were the control, they had to keep starving them. And these, so these scientists were aware that these kids were starving because that made them the perfect control group for these nutrition experiments. And then they, then they therefore had to keep starving them. And so, um, this was all so that they could, um, figure out ways uh, like vitamin research and stuff like that. And all of that ended up becoming the basically like the food pyramid and food guide in Canada. So we like, you know, we have this really complex history with medical professionals, with, um, you know, hospitals. There were like Indian hospitals and things like that where people were sent when they had tuberculosis and it was basically places they went to die. And so we have this like very, very complex um hurtful history with with the medical community and so um having all all of that awareness I did want to kind of bring that into the book and we and I kind of do that through not just um Alice and her own experiences but also um uh Alice's mother's experiences with um trying to have um you know um her own like chronic pain dealt with and things like that and so you know um I I kind of wanted to speak to these sorts of things in a way that felt natural. Um, and so I guess, um, being aware of how different cultures look at things in different ways was, was particularly important to me, but also being aware of how, um, you know, in, in many ways, um, uh, Western, um, colonial kind of, uh, white, ways of viewing indigeneity is also to pathologize at all in all ways and so um you know uh this why are you so angry why are you so um you know why are you saying this is racism why can't you get over it all of these things that are also ways to make you feel crazy um with how you're moving through the world and being treated and and kind of playing with those parallels um through perspective and and things like that and how who um alice is interacting with and how they're treating her based on sometimes things they aren't they don't know <laughs> you know what i mean like the things they're assuming and bringing to her so yeah 
Wow. Yeah. You know, one of the most forceful points, I think, of the book kind of is like how you were just saying, like that colonialism, like works through an entire society's institutions, you know, not just government, but through medicine, as you said, and through academia, which is like a really big part of this, too. And um, it really illustrates like the kind of vicious cycle of like how colonialism acts on people because like it causes trauma and then the people who have been traumatized are then blamed for being traumatized and that's just used as like further justification you know and like it's really like um like it, it does a very good job of like illustrating the systemic nature of it um could you talk a little bit about like how steve and like the academic institutions kind of figure into all this too because um I, before I like, I fled academia to libraries and that's why I'm here now. And it's great. Um, <laughs> um, so a lot of that like resonated with me a lot. So could you talk about that aspect too? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, so when I was, when I was kind of conceiving of Steve and his character um, in like the earliest drafts, I didn't really have um any idea what what he wanted to do and it was only or what he was going to do as like a profession and it was only kind of as I started thinking through things and and reading through also um uh certain texts in particular um Rick Montour's uh work which um is kind of uh part of the epigraph in the beginning um and he was kind of talking about the ways that uh the ways that academia like basically the the field of anthropology started with these academics who were studying our people and then writing about our people and that kind of is like the creation of anthropology as a field in academia and what that meant in terms of like people um kind of what i mentioned earlier um seeing things through their own lens and then kind of um drawing assumptions or making assumptions about particular things you know um like people assuming for example that you know our people worshipped like water and trees and all of these things as as gods essentially and how that was so stupid or or whatever but that wasn't actually what <laughs> what we were doing we were you know um uh we have something called the thanksgiving address which um we do uh which we have someone recite kind of at the beginning of um, of meetings and, um, you know, uh, the beginnings of days and things like that, where we're basically acknowledging every element of creation, because without them, we wouldn't be able to exist. So, you know, it would be some, saying things like, you know, um, we give thanks and acknowledgement to the water for, um, for being able to provide us with nourishment to, um, to water the, the, the grasses and the trees and um to give a home to you know um to to fish things like that right um and uh you know and and that's kind of what I also kind of talk about a little bit in the book as well with um kind of the Thanksgiving address and 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 how that kind of plays into things and so kind of um that whole concept is uh is very is very important, but also can be misinterpreted, just like all things. And so um, in terms of academia now, it, it kind of, I personally have, I guess, um, a lot of frustration because in some ways, uh, I think that um, the academy, although it's like a great, great, because I guess it gives you a space to kind of 
study these things and and all of this and incentive to do that if you're for example a Haudenosaunee person who wants to study your your culture you can do that within the academy in some ways but the way that it operates is um is very very much protectionist keep everything in um even in terms of the language that is spoken um uh it, it's technically english but it's it's all in theory right and it's all in these ways um using all of this terminology that the people who you're theorizing about can't understand and therefore they can't engage with it and therefore it's very um it's it's you know very sorry i'm trying to think of the correct word because it i i don't want to say it's necessarily violent but i think that it it is um it's keeping out the people who you're talking about right from being able to to speak back so some of these academics who wrote about our people would write these things in english and it's not like our people could have read or they they submitted to them to read before publishing so that they could make sure they got everything accurate and then that after you know these same people who are, who are so interested in in studying our culture are also at the same time in levels of government trying to distinguish our culture at the same exact time so that later all we have to refer back to are these books these people who didn't understand us and didn't make sure that they like that we were making sure that they said everything that in a way that represented us correctly and accurately and fairly now that's what we have too and so like in some ways the 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 act like um you know it's a kind of a double-edged sword because yes they did kind of take this and and preserve it in a way it, it preserve their vision of it in a way but also the fact that these people at the same time as they're so interested they want to make their name in academia on studying us and writing about us they don't at the same time lobby for us to continue to exist as we are so that we can we can speak speak back to these things and keep these things for ourselves instead of having to eventually um after you know these colonial government projects get us where they want us in a certain sense where we don't have that at the same way where we don't have to refer back to these texts because we have this you know what i mean so there's that that kind of push and pull of it and this way that you know of of looking at the people that you're studying in a very dehumanizing way and distilling it down to what is the consumable thing that I can take from this. And in in the case of academia, that's all often culture or knowledge or language or things like that. They're taking those things because they want to make their name on them. They're, they're resources, again, that are being extracted and, and done with whatever they will when the people that they're extracting them from have no say over it or don't give consent essentially yeah there's a really powerful moment and i'm going to like talk about the moment without talking about what goes on around it <laughs> where <laughs> you know they're talking about in a very sort of like academic conversation about whether a genocide happened and then somebody says like oh well maybe it was like a cultural genocide and you know and to me that really illustrates the way that like academia can sometimes like its surface motivation is to like you know preserve and protect these cultures and to like save them for posterity but also like there is like a little bit of a, a legitimating of colonialism going on there you know like it is providing the language that will 
soften the way that like what happened to a people is perceived if that makes sense you know like is yeah that, that moment was so illustrative of like the they're like the exploitative nature sometimes of these like relationships between academics and those they study it was like very so like so crystallizing you know oh good good <laughs> that's good to hear <laughs> Um, could we talk a little bit about the story that Alice is writing, like her novel that she's writing within this novel? Um, it's really beautiful. And I love how you distinguish her writing voice from yours so much. Like there's two very different tones, but they are also linked. Like, you know, like because you give us Alice's perspective and then we get her voice through her writing. Um, and it's it's unique, but it also like feels like it emanates from her, if that makes sense, too. Um mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about like crafting, um, you know, the version of um, a creation story that she's crafting while also sort of like questioning, you not questioning it, but providing like multiple interpretations and like opening up stories to new ideas and stuff like that. So can you talk about mm-hmm. that and like how her text interacts with like the events of the novel? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I have been very interested um for a long time in in storytelling and um the way that it operates um within uh my culture in particular um so uh within Haudenosaunee culture and one of the things that um is that I find very fascinating is that you know there are some indigenous cultures where you have to like memorize word for word basically um how this story because you have to preserve it in that way and there's like um you know the, the a lot of like coast salish communities um have that kind of ideas you have to keep it exactly as it is um but for what i thought was interesting for our culture is that you know um we're very much of the mindset that like you know you're when you're telling a story you have to be mindful of your audience and who you're telling it to. And you kind of, um, it, that determines how you're going to tell it. Um, and so you have the story, but you can kind of do it in different ways, depending on who you're talking to. So like, if you're, you know, um, a storyteller that's telling a story, um, to adults, you can have kind of these, like these funny innuendos or things like that, that kind of like make it appealing to adults and and they're laughing about these things and stuff like that. Whereas if you're talking, you're telling it to kids, you might want to like, you know, pull up uh, or like leave those out, but then kind of have um, a more, like a more exciting tone or like trying to add in these like moments of suspense and really kind of like and amplify them through how you're talking and just just stirring and all of these different things right and I thought that that was so fascinating because you know going from you know we uh oral storytelling to written storytelling in a sense um that is that element is removed um you can't just you know but depending on who's who's reading your story change what details you're relaying change with the tone that you're using and things like that and so you know um I wanted to because I was so so interested in that I wanted to that was something I wanted to kind of explore in in within the story and have Alice kind of grappling with these things as she tries to figure out her own way of telling the story um as opposed to her father's way of telling the story or different other like other storytellers who have told um the story and so the story she is 
is telling to start is the creation story, which, um, you know, uh, I guess, um, I think, I think it's rather colloquially kind of known, I suppose, um, uh, the sky woman story as she falls through the hole in the tree and then she falls down to earth and the animals kind of see her they send some birds up to catch her and as they're kind of bringing her slowly down the animals are like we gotta figure out something because there's just water here and um they send kind of these different animals down to try and grab this clay from the bottom of the from the bottom of the of all of the water and um these animals that are supposed to be like great swimmers it's so far down they keep dying and it's only you know the muskrat who comes back and has this tiny little like he comes back and he's dead and he's floating on the water and they realize at the end that he has a little bit of clay in his hand and that's what they end up using to kind of um uh put on the turtles back to create um you know what is called turtle island or or um it's called north america i guess um and so you know that that story is uh very like well known in a sense but what fascinated me was um the story of sky woman prior to when she became sky woman and so um you know someone who who did something seemingly arbitrary and small which is like you know falling <laughs> through a hole and then other people are catching her and setting her up so that she can like you know survive on this unknown planet away from all of her family um but like what 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 happened prior to that and there there are these different stories about that and um and they all change um and what i thought was fascinating and i mentioned this in the book is that you know even the story of sky woman falling um uh in general change it changed as a result of you know the women's lib movement in the 70s that was that had an influence in our community on how people were telling the story of sky woman jumping instead of um instead of just falling she she saw and she was like i'm gonna go like this is my like this is my choice and so how that kind of that shifts depending on the perspective and everything like that and i kind of wanted to um within uh alice kind of thinking through these things and trying to figure out her own voice and how she wants to tell it as opposed to how other people want to tell it i thought that it gave me an opportunity to kind of talk through these sorts of things in a way that felt authentic to the story but um but also kind of um made it so that even if i couldn't actually like say you know change the book for whoever is reading it there's um, i could give other interpretations and tell you how other people have have told the story or how you could interpret the story and also thinking through like every story you know what I mean um even written ones as well our interpretation is what we bring to it right and so you know I wanted to kind of emphasize that is that every story um every life uh really is um about what we bring to it the perspective we bring to it our values and what we um put on to that life or that story um and that those things can change depending on our perspective if someone tells us something else we'd be like oh i didn't think of it that way and then shift you know um so it's kind of what i was hoping to kind of do just a small tiny thing you know (laughs) um, with 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 that and and i thought it was it was it was fun for me to try and do that yeah it's really it's fun to read too like those those sections like they they speak to the narrative in a really interesting way but also provide like a little bit of like tension release 
sometimes, you know? Um, so they just, and they function so beautifully. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really lovely. And it's been so nice to chat with you about this book. It was just such a, a pleasure to read and I'm really excited for our patrons to read it. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's so nice to talk about it, but technically hasn't come out yet. And so it's like, you know, that when you're in that weird limbo from <laughs> like waiting for your book to come out, you're just like, what's it going to be like? What are people going to think? So <laughs> it's been nice to actually like talk about it with, so, with a real live person who's not just my editor. <laughs> oh, happy to be nervous. That's great. <laughs> um, well, yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, um, you're always welcome back on the show for your next project. Like, I'm very excited to see what you do next, too. So just thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. You're so lovely. <laughs> All right, listeners, please check out And Then She Fell. Uh, by the time that you hear this, it will be available. So please go to your favorite independent bookstore or library, wherever you like to get your books. Thanks so much for joining us. It is now time to close this chapter. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.